We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by Nicholas Smith, who writes and reports on Taiwan for the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And on the telephone by Taipei-based freelance reporter, Ralph Jennings. Hi, Gavin. Tonight we'll be discussing moves by the United States to penalise countries that sever formal ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing, the controversial resignation of the Vice Chairman of the Transitional Justice Commission, more moves by the Education Ministry to tackle the issue of Guangzhou Min's election as President of the National Taiwan University, a rather worrying Greenpeace report about pollution and a survey that shows Taipei is becoming more livable. And we'll begin with members of a pro-China unification party covering the entrance to the building which houses Japan's de facto embassy in Taipei with paint on Monday evening of this week. Now, that incident followed an afternoon protest outside the building over the actions of a Japanese national who was seen kicking a statue of a comfort woman in Tainan earlier this month. Law enforcement officials say that four members of the pro-China unionist party splashed paint all over the building's entrance, foyer and glass panels. Earlier that day, the KMT and members of a comfort women's support group were rallying outside the building and they also delivered a petition to the de facto embassy protesting the actions of the Japanese national who was seen kicking the statue. Now, the KMT also says it's seeking to draft a bill making it illegal to discriminate against a former comfort woman, family members of a former comfort woman or a comfort woman memorial. And the KMT says the bill will make anyone found guilty of such discrimination while they'll be sent to prison for one year. The Ministry of Foreign Affairs, meanwhile, says the government policy on the history of comfort women remains unchanged and it will continue to urge Japan to face up to the issue. However, Ministry spokesman Andrew Lee told reporters that the Tsai administration also hopes that the matter will not hinder Japan-Taiwan relations from moving forward. Now, the man who kicked the statue setting off the political mess has since been identified as a representative of the Japanese civic group, the Alliance for Truth About Comfort Women. And his group has issued an apology, saying that the members' actions risk harming relations between Japan and Taiwan, damaged the image of the Japanese people, and also violated international norms of good behaviour. Now, the man, of course, he insisted that he was stretching his legs at the time, but he has apparently resigned from his position with the Japanese nationalist group. So, Nicola, a statue kicking and irie about Japan... Yeah, I mean, where do you start with all that, really? It's such a complicated um, story. I mean, first of all, the man who did it, uh, you know, despite his creative excuses, he was just being completely petulant and disrespectful, wasn't he? But I don't think the answer is then to, to go and throw paint over the Japanese embassy, um, especially as he was not a government official. I, I think that the KMT have to be um, a little bit more realistic about this as well. I mean, of course, um, these women should be remembered and what happened to them was terrible. And, and the, the Japanese, I, I do feel, should have more understanding for, for people who want to remember that and have these mem memorials. But um, at the same time, Taiwan has to live in 2018 and, and Japan is one of its biggest, um, most important allies. So you can't really just dismiss that that factor either. And I, I do wonder how the KMT would handle this if they were actually in government. I don't think this incident in any way will affect relations between Taiwan and Japan from a government-to-government -government point of view, nor do I think 
any large groundswell of people here will particularly notice it. Um, as you can tell by walking out on any street, there are, there's a pile of Japanese restaurants, Japanese convenience stores, Japanese clothing brands, Japanese books and uh, stores and libraries. People love the place. Travel is at an all-time high. <clears throat> um, so it's not really going to wash. I think it's, it's, a, it's an old KMT issue that they bring up. Um, as Nicholas said, what happened to the women is terrible. There should be more recognition about that and other World War II issues in Japan. Um, but that said, it is something that the KMT brings up as part of its longstanding platform that goes clear back to the 1930s, and they're not going to let it go. And, of course, the statue was opened on a bit of private land opposite the KMT headquarters in Tainan. And, of course, really the only media that covered it was the pro-sort-of-blue media, Ralph. That would lend more credence to my case that this is a, a KMT-generated issue. And I don't think the KMT, per se, is horribly opposed to modern-day Japan and some of the things that it's done for Taiwan over the past few decades. However, it's, it's part of the platform, and you know, if, if it's what your party, if it's what's in your constitution, and it's what your senior members want, then you got to go and do it. Right, Nicola. I mean, obviously, this was like I said, the statue was put on private land by a private organisation with backing from the KMT, opposite its headquarters in Tainan. But do you think, do you think it's odd that the central government hasn't actually done something more to memorialise the comfort women? I mean, as as I said, the the central government has to also manage modern day diplomacy and and diplomatic relations. And if you look at what's happened between um, Japan and South Korea, this has become a huge bone of contention, and and it does come it does get in the way of um, negotiations on North Korea or in uh, relations between South Korea and Japan in, in general. Um, you can't just ignore it, as I said, and I don't think that the type. The, the Taiwanese central government is ignoring it. Um, I think they're just being pragmatic about it. And, you know, this is one issue out of multiple issues that could be recognised. I, I think that the KMT certainly seem to be politicising this one in their own interests, um, it, while at the same time they don't seem to be as vocal about things like the White Terror, where thousands of people disappeared in Taiwan, um, and you know many were tortured and many were killed. So you can't focus on one issue and not the other. Yeah, I tend to agree that all these issues, um, and you can go back in history of anywhere and find, you know, a half a dozen horrific things that happened, and the question becomes for, in 2008 terms, which ones political parties and governments tend to focus on which ones they put on the sidelines and it really comes down to what they're trying to prove and the government in power now has excellent informal relations with with um with japan and they draw a lot of their support from uh, older members who can remember when perhaps when japan was the uh the colonizer of Taiwan, or if they don't remember, then they, their kids do, and there's, there's there's a connection that goes back there. A lot of fond memories for them. So the DPP government is going to be mindful of that of that support network when it decides what to do about these issues. 
Let's move on to another government, this being the government of the United States, which this week reiterated its support for Taiwan by recalling its top diplomats to three Central American and Caribbean countries that have recently severed diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favour of Beijing. Now, the US State Department recalled its ambassadors to the Dominican Republic and El Salvador and also its charge d'affaires to Panama. Now, a State Department spokesman said that the three envoys have been recalled for consultations on ways in which the United States can support strong, independent, democratic institutions and economies throughout the Central America and Caribbean region. The spokesman went on to say that the White House will also continue to support Taiwan as it seeks to expand its already significant contributions to addressing global challenges and as Taiwan resists efforts to constrain its appropriate participation on the world stage. Now, Foreign Minister Joseph Wu this week also warned about China's coercion of Taiwan, saying that it poses a threat to regional security and global global democracy. And speaking in a recorded video address to a conference in Washington, D.C., Wu described Taiwan's rivalry with China as a David versus Goliath struggle. So, Ralph, you being the qualified American here to talk about what your government's doing by recalling these diplomats, what do you think of this move? My impression is that the diplomats were not recalled in the typical diplomatic plot that we used to describe actions like that. They were, in fact, told to return to Washington for consultations about how they do business in Central America. And clearly it was related to the um, those three countries breaking off ties to Taiwan because they went after the diplomats from those three countries instead of from somewhere else. But my impression, uh, based on this very brief State Department uh, announcement, is that they will be sent back to those countries um, once these consultations are over. Um, I won't swear to that, but that's how, that was my understanding of, of what I read. And what they end up talking about when, in Washington is probably just, uh, you know, all the things you mentioned, Taiwan-U.S. relations, um, make sure that um, um, Taiwan doesn't get too marginalized and China doesn't get too much influence in the rest of Latin America. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I just, um, I, I do agree that Taiwan should um, assert itself more on the global stage. I think sometimes it's been a little bit too resident to, to push its own case. And it's good to see that the US is increasingly backing Taiwan. At the same time, I just don't think that the answer to China's bullying tactics is to bully other countries. And and frankly, you know, these, these are countries who they have their sovereign right to decide who they want to have diplomatic relations with. I mean, why should America dictate to Panama or El Salvador, you must maintain diplomatic relationships with Taipei when, um, you, you know, America doesn't do it itself formally behind the scenes. Yes, but formally, it certainly doesn't. Um, and um, why would you, uh, you know, why, why would you then have the right to dictate to another country what their foreign policy should be? America made its own decision based out of its own self-interest in 1979 that it was going to go with China. Yeah, I think this also, um, what the U.S. is doing, comes down to a couple of causes of the moment. One is uh, President Donald Trump's issues with China, mostly on trade these days, and he's, it, <clears throat> he's looking for other things he can use to sort of stick it to China while they're in a the weak position to make them keep bargaining and, and um, limit how far they can, they can go in, in pursuing their other interests. The other thing is you have a lot of people in the U.S. Congress who are 
very pro-Taiwan for their own reasons, um, based on their, their own support networks and the people living in their district. So you have those two factors combined, and you've, you've seen a lot of pro-Taiwan movements um, this year to date, a little bit last year. Um, however, as Nicola rightly points out, there are no formal diplomatic relations that haven't been since the 70s, so the U.S. government is playing both sides. You know, where the money's in China, you know, China's where the power is, they have to maintain their relations there somehow one way or another. So <clears throat> it's possible once the trade war ends, if it does, that um, some of the official White House support for Taiwan will go back into the shadows again. And then we have um, congressional midterm elections that could see some of that support for Taiwan also change, depending on who gets elected. Right. But do you think, I mean, by threatening its allies, do you think America could really do anything about stopping certain countries from going to China? If this bill passes, that there's a bill in Congress that would allow the the president or the State Department to take any number of different measures to hurt these other countries that sever ties with Taiwan. Um, and I think it's one of these beautifully written bills where it's advisory in nature. You, c- you can do anything you want, but you don't have to. So it would be what the State Department actually does would come down to the mood of the moment um, where they, they feel like they can withdraw some military aid or cut off coffee shipments, whatever they want to do, they'll do that when the time comes. So it, it's, again, it's, it's, it allows its positioning. They can do more, they can hurt these countries if they want to, but then if, if the politics in Washington changes, then they don't have to do it. I do think the whole thing's really quite hypocritical and, and you know, it's a slippery slope for both the U.S. and especially Taiwan. And, you know, Taiwan um, globally wants to be more recognized. It wants its own sovereignty to be respected on the international stage. Um, at the same time, it's, it's siding with a kind of superpower that's saying to smaller countries, we're not going to respect your sovereignty and your right to decide who to have diplomatic ties with or we will punish you. So I, I just don't think it's the right way to go about it. And I would be interested to see if um, you know these these senators who are kind of pushing this bill if they would have the same strong strongly held views about say the Solomon Islands or you know um, Pacific territories that switch ties or whether it's more about um, their concerns that China is setting up shop in America's on America's own doorstep and whether it's more about their geopolitical concerns than I, I do think that people genuinely um, on the hill that they do care about Taiwan and that Taiwan has a lot of supporters there. At the same time, I worry that Taiwan it sometimes is being used as a pawn and that in this case, that it could just be um, convenient to the US to use it to needle China um, on this particular issue and that, you know, if, if the geopolitics shift again, that, that Taiwan will be dropped. Yeah, a couple of things. The, the other irony here is that if the US does indeed sanction some of these smaller countries that China, which would be their new diplomatic partner, could just raise the amount of aid it gives them to offset whatever economic punishment is handed down by Washington. So it doesn't really wash. It doesn't really work in the end. Um, Regarding the South Pacific, my impression is that Australia traditionally backs those countries um, (laughs) in the same way that the United States backs up a lot of Latin America and I don't think that people on the Hill would be as responsive um, if the Solomons or some, somebody else down there were to break ties. And if you look at U.S. history, they, 
the uh, the government has always been more worried about communist influence, for lack of a better word, in its backyard. We had Cuba, we had Nicaragua in the 80s. There's always been that kind of that psychology of, of a threat coming in <clears throat> off the off the southern borders. And the saga of the Ministry of Education and the National Taiwan University President-elect Guan Zhongming has once again raised its ugly head. And, well, the Education Minister Ye Rong this week said that the university does need to elect a new president. Nothing new there, though, but he did say the university must re-elect a president from the five candidates shortlisted in January's ballot. And that list, of course, included Guan Zhong Min, whose election, of course, initially sparked the standoff between the ministry and the university. Ye said the ministry can re-elect Guan, but only if it makes a decision in regards Taiwan Mobile Vice President Richard Tsai's continuing participation in the Presidential Selection Committee. Now, the committee must either remove Tsai from it or ban him from casting a ballot in the re-election. The Education Minister also warned that the university, well, if it refuses to accept the proposal, his office will be forced to respond to two administrative appeals that call on the ministry to approve Guan's appointment. And Guan basically said that could lead to big problems for the university itself. Now, yeah, also said that he plans to overhaul regulations on university presidential elections. But that all appears to be too late because Guan this week dismissed any move that you air mentioned, saying that the Ministry of Education is offering no new proposals to the problem of his being elected and then not being approved to take up the post. So, Ralph, this saga is never going away, it would appear. Yeah, I noticed that. I was trying to think of something more intelligent to say um, based on the, the recent news reports and I... I really can't think of much except that um, this is a major university. It's the Taiwan flagship school, um, you know, for domestically as well as for research community overseas. So they should try to get this thing settled, take business and politics out of it, and move on. The interesting thing was, they said Guan can be re-elected if you if you remove the person that we had a conflict of interest with from the selection committee. An easy thing to do, Ralph. I don't know. Um, it sounds uh, administratively rather simple, but um, I'm sure there are many other layers to it that um, we can't see. It sounds like they just need to get one of these kind of brutal, head-haunting um, uh, management consultancies in just to sort it out and you know, kind of take out all the interests and just look at it in a very clinical way and um, business-like way. But you have to, the university would have to pay them well, it's a local university, so it's probably not going to want to pay. I, I think it's probably worth the pain. I mean, it sounds like this saga has been going on for so long that they should just either either that or a, or a TV reality show. Maybe they could settle it that way. But I mean, Ralph, if they have the election and Guan wins again, of course, which he's probably likely to do, is who? I mean, it, the government's going to look pretty stupid. Possibly. I, I don't have a sense, um, although what, my, what preliminary sense I have of, like, the, the public opinion, the public degree of concern for this issue is that it's not a big, it's not it's not something you go home and talk to your family about at the end of the day. It's not one of those things that's going to affect the party in power or anybody, any other party, <clears throat> regardless of how it plays out. Um, people can still go to school there. The researchers are still doing their research, coming out with their papers. Um, so I, it's just... Um, I think if, if, unless they can't settle it and it goes on and spills into other parts of government and other parts of society, I, I doubt it's going to ripple into um, up to the higher levels of government. 
Anyway, another thing that happened this week with another budgety government issuing agency was that when the vice chairman of the Transitional Justice Commission resigned. Now, he resigned on Wednesday, a month after he drew widespread criticism for remarks he made about a KMT mayoral candidate. Now, Jung Tian Chin's comments about new Taipei mayoral candidate Ho Yo E were viewed as being politically motivated and inappropriate. And speaking to reporters after he stepped down, Jung apologised for describing Ho as the worst example of transitional justice. Now, that remark referred to Ho's role in the attempted arrest of Taiwan independence advocate Jung Nan Rong in 1989. Now, Jung set himself on fire as police were trying to arrest him and died of his injuries. Now, the KMT is calling on members of the commission to resign en masse and for the operations of the commission to be suspended, arguing that, well, maybe the Transitional Justice Commission is not quite what it appears to be and it's basically full of government lackeys who want to persecute that particular party, being the KMT. Now, the KMT is also requesting that prosecutors investigate the commission on concerns about political interference. So, Ralph, of course, when they basically set up the Transitional Justice Commission, there was questions at the time about how it would function and who it would be going after. True. And it kind of goes back to a couple of things we touched on earlier. One, I don't think this is an issue, again, that people go home and talk about over dinners. So whatever happens, it's going to be it's going to remain rather local. And the other thing is that it's another one of these issues that where the, the, the government party in power has decided that it's monumentally important for it to, to elevate and to settle in public, whereas somebody else comes into power might not have the same view. So it's um, perhaps the dispute has gone in that direction. As you mentioned, the KMT is calling for a mass resignation. Probably won't happen. Um, so it's, it's, um, it, it, I suspect it will end up going the way of the, um, the, the NTU case. So the, a bit of bickering, it might last a while, but at the end of the day, it's local and it's just uh, it's inter-party strife more than anything else. I think, you know, again, um, transitional justice is clearly an important issue. It's not going to go away. A lot of people um, still are are looking for some kind of, um, uh, you know, redress for for what's happened to them and and their families. And this is an issue that you... It's very difficult not to bring politics into it, but they have to do everything that they, they can do not to... Um, give the perception that that there are political interests here. Um, they just have to kind of, and this case shows that you you just really have to to make you know go above and beyond to to try and make sure that this kind of committee is independent and and doesn't have its inherent biases. And and perhaps one solution would be to get some kind of outside independent experts. I mean, why not? You know, people who the KMT cannot then say, oh, these these people are just motivated by the ruling party's interests and, and you know, or vice versa. Um, that if the government changes at some point, the DPP can't then say, well, these are just KMT stooges. Why not get some... Um, there are pl- plenty of transitional justice experts in the world, uh, human rights lawyers, um, you know, forensic experts who can go into the details and, and can do things a lot with a lot more um, impartiality. Because, of course, the government recently said that it's, it's, it's studying how former Eastern European countries 
set up their transitional justice commissions. Yeah, well, I mean, there there are a lot of precedents, aren't there? There's, you know, South Africa, Northern Ireland, um, Eastern Europe, as you mentioned. So, you know, maybe they're already doing this, but if not, why not go to these countries, ask them for help? How did you do this? How did you um, get round uh, these um, accusations of political bias? How could you make sure that you were doing this in a, a kind of fair and independent way? Um, and just learn from from other countries. Yeah, I, I agree with that last idea. It'd be good to uh, kind of adopt a, a system that's been used somewhere else, um, and that, as uh, Nicholas said earlier, in regard to another topic, maybe hire an outside manager, cover this whole thing in a rather clinical way, so that there's no perception that the the, the board is stacked by political people. Yeah, I mean, I, I think, again, you know, what, what this case shows is that if there are, even if there's the most remote doubt um, in people's minds that this, this kind of commissioner committee is, is independent, then whatever conclusions they come out with will always be held in doubt. And, and that's not the result that you want. You want a kind of clear cut conclusion. Um, and you do want some kind of justice for people who's, who they, who've suffered and they and their families have suffered. Right. Now, not very nice news, that, but we'll move on to more grim news now, or grimmer news. And this was Greenpeace Taiwan this week, releasing a review of plans to build a new coal-fired power plant in New Taipei's Feng district. Now, their review said it would result in the deaths of over 500 people over a 15-year period due to worsening air pollution. Now, according to the health risk assessment, 576 people would die of heart disease, lung cancer, chronic pulmonary disease or strokes between 2025 and 2040 due to increased exposure to fine particulate matter with a diameter of 2.5 micrometres or less. Oh, that was, there you go. Greenpeace says the related deaths would not only be seen in New Taipei, Taipei and Jilung, which are pretty much near where the power plant's going to be, but also in Taoyuan, Shinzu, Miaoli, Taichung, Tainan and Kaohsiung and pretty much everywhere island-wide. And it said that 145 of the deaths would occur before the unlucky persons reached the age of 70. Now, the health risk assessment was conducted by two health experts and one expert in environmental engineering. So, Nicola, they, that number, I found this number A, disturbing, and B, questioned where you get it from. Well, I don't want to be too flippant. It's a serious issue, but it's a very specific number. Isn't it is, it? yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> 576 people. Yeah, <laughs> now kind of looking around, who are they? Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, we know, and there have been big studies recently that have come out that saying, you know, these fine particles, PM 2.5, that yes, they are um, leading to early deaths and they are um, leading to, uh, uh, I think, mental issues was, was the, the most recent men- mental health issues um, as well. Um, I When it comes to these kind of studies, I do want to know more about additional factors that would have you know result in these deaths um do they have you know kind of um other conditions that would would um contribute to that as well i i mean we live in a dangerous world we could be um you know, we could also 
be killed in a car crash. You know, it's just like it's very hard <laughs> just to cheer things up. It's very hard to make these exact predictions. But the, the fundamental underlying issue here is that Taiwan has an energy problem and that it does have a pollution problem and that pollution does affect health um, and that alternatives need to be found. But at the same time, people are opposing nuclear energy. So, you know, where does the answer lie for Taiwan? I suspect the death count estimates come from some kind of modeling based on the type of land and the population in the area around it. Uh, that being said, I, the, the question makes me wonder what's happening with renewable energy, that, which has been the push now for uh, two successive governments, especially the Thai administration. And I, I see a lot of movement toward offshore wind power um, despite some expenses and other obstacles. So I was a little bit surprised to know that Taiwan is going to lean more heavily on coal-fired fuel, um, although perhaps there's an offset somewhere from, from renewables that I don't know about. And this particular power plant, the Shenhao power plant here that was in the Greenpeace study, there's the KMT, of course, is, has a referendum about it in the election in November. Well, it's not, it's not an issue that's going to be solved by a referendum, is it? I mean, it's an issue that needs very um, deep-seated government policies to address Taiwan's um, energy crisis um, and energy insecurities. So, you know, these kind of referendums I don't think are particularly helpful in um, the you know long term strategies and, and building up policies it just all becomes very polemic and and distracting to to the work that has to be done and I you know I I don't I'm not against these kind of studies like I think it's good for people to know the dangers um, I think it's also a, a little bit alarmist um, saying you know X number of people are going to die um, I I think I would prefer to see something. A bit more constructive as well, like, you know, maybe perhaps Greenpeace has done this already, perhaps I missed it. But, you know, more resources concentrated on these are Taiwan's energy problems and these are the solutions that we think um, would help uh, that that crisis that, that we have, rather than just saying coal, coal bad, nuclear bad. Um, why not spend your time and energy on a policy paper saying this is how we can solve the problem? Yeah, well, then Greenpeace wouldn't have been on the front of the Apple Daily this week with a big headline that screamed, 576 people will die. That is correct. And before we go, reports this week said that Taipei is among five cities that have been climbing in the Economist Intelligence Unit's rankings of the world's most livable cities. Taipei ranked 58th in the 2018 EIU Global Livability Ranking. That was two places up from last year. And reports are attributing Taipei's ranking climb to the city's ongoing investment in infrastructure and healthcare. Taipei's metro system got a mention for its ongoing expansion. Healthcare got a nod for its coverage for both locals and expats and also its covering of both Western and Chinese medicines. Now, these most livable cities are ranked every year by the Economist Intelligence Unit, and the ranking has taken into consideration 30 factors, including safety, healthcare, food, education and transportation quality. And if you're interested, the other four cities that rose in the rankings are Honolulu, Budapest, Kuwait City and Auckland. So, more livable. Since you first came in, Nicola, is Taipei more livable? 
I don't think it's changed really. I think it's uh, it feels the same. It's always felt very livable. Um, I've always enjoyed living here um, and hope to do so for a while yet. I, I, you, we've discussed these studies before. I'm getting a bit lost with with global studies at the minute about best place for expats or best place to live. I just think you, you know you should find a city that you like and stay there. Ralph, more livable. Um, has it changed since I've been here? The the MRT system has definitely added a lot of lines, and I can remember there are stations <clears throat> that didn't even exist when I was here, and they're now they're now trunk lines. Not only are they new stations, but you can go to four different places from them. So there's a clear amount of change in transportation, um, healthcare. It's hard. Well, um, it's hard to compare. My I do a lot of healthcare with kids because they have to go in for shots and things like that. So so far, so good. Um, I agree that, you know, well, everybody has different expectations for a city that they live in, and I don't think there's one size fits all. These surveys, I'm glad to hear they're, they're um, mentioning the categories for which they analyze the rankings, but there are probably a lot of other things that affect one's lifestyle that are not being accounted for in those surveys. And of course, healthcare got a good got a nod, but then, then what? What? Gaoshung has the same healthcare. Yeah, I think you know, as Ralph said, these these studies are kind of selective as well, aren't they? I mean, you know, also it might be better just not to live in a city and live in the countryside. But the downside, the downside of the studies as well is that you know, if, if more people want to come to Taipei, then it will become less livable and more overcrowded. That's true. So people should stay away. Is that what you're saying? Mm, yeah. Right, but we're here, so we're okay. We can stay, but people have to stay away. Anyway, that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week, and I've been joined in the studio today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And on the telephone by Ralph Jennings. Thanks, Gavin. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8.30 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.